You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Everybody's excited about the Trinity right now. Sure, it's a venerable orthodox doctrine, but it's also a hot topic, and in a broad range of Christian traditions too. The modern revival of interest has been with us for a while, of course, since Bart's church dogmatic, certainly, but that interest seems only to have grown over the decades. Like pumpkin spice, uh, the Trinity seems to be in everything, and as with pumpkin spice, some sober-minded folks think that enthusiasm has led to excess and misguided innovation. Well, as the sage Vizzini once said, when the job goes wrong, go back to the beginning. And theologian Fred Sanders has much the same advice. In his book, The Triune God, Sanders labors not so much to break new ground as to reestablish Trinitarian theology on its original ground, God in three persons, revealed for us in our salvation. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Fred Sanders, professor in Biola University's Tory Honors Institute and author of The Triune God, published by Zondervan. Welcome back to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Sanders. Thanks. Good to be here again, David. Well, this book is one of a series called New Studies in Dogmatics. This is, I think, the third volume? Uh, Second one to appear. Second one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, What is this series? Uh, who's, Who's behind this series, and how should its goals shape the way we read this book? Yeah, well, it's uh, New Studies in Dogmatics is a, a great series from Zondervan. Um, as you said, one volume's already out, Chris Holmes's book on the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, it, uh, the editors are um, Mike Allen and Scott Swain, who are both mm. now at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And I won't get the number right here, but it must be projected to be something like 20 volumes mm. of uh, monographs on major doctrines, by um, recognized theologians, uh, people who have already done something on that doctrine or in a, in a related field. So it's really a, so it's a wonderful um, list of authors. I can't call it off the top of my head, um, but there's, uh, it, it, it kind of reads like a who's who of who you'd want to read on which doctrine you'd want to read. So it's a real honor to be uh, among that esteemed company. Cool. Well, how is the approach that you're taking in this volume different from, I mean, this is your, uh, as, as I'm counting it, um, this is your, your, your third Trinity book. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so how are you coming at it differently from uh, Deep Things of God or uh, your first book, The Image of the Imminent? Yeah, that's uh, you picked up on the fact that around the house I can no longer tell my wife or kids that I'm working on the Trinity book because that's kind of been the answer <laughs> for 20 years. <laughs> I have to be very specific in describing what I'm currently writing. Um, well, let's see. The uh, image of the imminent trinity uh, was based on my dissertation with the addition and subtraction of a couple of chapters. Mm. Um, so that was definitely written at a you know at a high academic level. And then Deep Things of God uh, is my my best selling book. It's the, my my writing for the church. Um, it's less a it's less a matter of putting my dissertation work on a lower shelf than it is sort of elevating the sorts of things I say when I teach in church settings. Hmm. So um, leading up to writing Deep Things of God, I had a pretty extensive speaking ministry in lots of churches and Christian groups, and I sort of 
workshopped what helped people and went with that in Deep Things of God. Which, by the way, um, Deep Things of God is getting a second edition uh, in April of next year. Very cool. Uh, Crossway is kind of retooling it to work even better in churches. People complained that the chapters were too long, Hmm. and people complain about end notes, of course, because end notes are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and then I wrote a study guide, which I think uh, in a small group discussion setting will be really helpful. So it's the same book, but retooled to work better in churches. Cool. So um, The Triune God is um, it's my attempt to make an extended, you know, monograph-length statement of the, the basics of the doctrine of the Trinity, what, uh, what this doctrine is for, how we came to know it and to formulate it. Um, and, I mean, what I've been thinking about since finishing writing the book is that it's kind of an exercise in slow thinking, hmm. so part of the trick is is to think that slowly and that carefully and still make it remotely interesting for the reader. Um, but if, if the reader accompanies me on that and, and finds what I say persuasive, then they, they should close it knowing where the doctrine of the Trinity is from and what it's for. And this should help keep them from looking around, scanning the horizon to see what the next bright idea is about what the Trinity is for. Because hmm. if you forget what the doctrine is about and what it's accomplishing, um, you know, you're susceptible to buying whatever comes down the pike as the latest idea for what the doctrine of the Trinity ought to do. Hmm. Yeah. Well, your your first move in the book isn't dogma, but doxology. But maybe mm-hmm. I've already made a category error there. So why should we begin rightly ordering our theological language by praising the triune God? Yeah, good. And so if, if what I just said was a little bit vague, you know, had the categories of what the doctrine of the Trinity is for, then you certainly put your finger on the one of the first things that this doctrine is for. It's for hmm. it's for saying to God. It's it's actually uh it's it's confessional. It's it's to try to speak well of God to God in prayer and in praise. Um uh as if he said, uh I, God the Father, uh, so love the world that I send my Son and my Spirit. Mm. And the Bible is the big book explaining and documenting and interpreting the sending of the Son and the Spirit. And then we say back to him, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. So, um, yeah, it's doxology. Is it a false dichotomy to distinguish doxology from doctrine or dogma? Um no, but I, I understand. I understand the distinction. Even even to say, even to start a book by saying, "I want to do this as an act of praise," could sound merely devotional. Hmm. Um, could sound like I'm excusing myself in advance for some really soft edges on my conceptual argumentation. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes using the word praise can signal that kind of uh, looseness in discourse. Hmm. Uh, that's not why I did it. I hope my discourse is sufficiently tight to satisfy people who like good, robust arguments. Um, but that's one of my commitments, is that the doctrine of the Trinity is for praising God. Hmm. Well, and I like the way in that chapter you uh, you anchor that in, in really the great tradition of Trinitarian writing, going back uh, going back to the Fathers, that uh, that there's always this um, right on the right on the verge of a hymn. Uh, kind of feel in a lot of that great Trinitarian writing. 
Mm, yeah. Yeah. And there's even uh, maybe a little bit of sleight of hand in that opening chapter. It, it sort of starts like uh, it starts as if I'm exegeting the um, the lesser doxology. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. Um, I, I'm treating it almost as if it's a passage of Scripture and I'm doing exegesis on it. Hmm. Um, but of course, it's not Scripture. It's a it's a sort of untraceably early uh, kind of a low-level response to Scripture. Hmm. Um, so if, if I'm entering there into interpreting the tradition insofar as the tradition is a helpful interpretation of Scripture, then I think that also helps set the tone for the way I'm interacting with the Bible and the Church Fathers. Hmm. Well, above all, uh, beyond what tradition can give us, beyond what our reason or our experience can give us, the doctrine of the Trinity is a revealed mystery of Christianity. So in what senses is it a mystery, and in what senses is it revealed? And how do we have to get these categories right so that we can shape our whole dogmatic project properly? Hmm. Yeah, so mystery is a word that always sort of uh, gravitates around the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and people mean a lot of different things when they say the Trinity is a mystery. Um, often that's used in a, as a kind of a warning not to think very hard about this topic, um, you know, that it, we have to sort of receive it um, piously and reverently, but not subject it to very much analysis as a doctrine. Um, what, what I try to do in this book is get my bearings primarily from the biblical use of the word mystery, where it is a, um, it, there's kind of a miniature canonical theology just built into the biblical use of the word mystery. If you track it from Daniel through, uh, it's used by, by the Synoptic Gospels, um, but especially in Paul, where Paul's just crystal clear multiple times that a major category of his thought is the fact that there was something once hidden but now revealed. Hmm. And just in normal everyday usage, if there was something once hidden and now revealed, I would no longer call it a mystery, right? I wouldn't talk about a surprise party as an ongoing mystery. <laughs> I would say I used to be in suspense, but now I'm not because it was revealed. But this, this theological reality that the Bible is talking about is something that was not made known back then, but now has been made known in Christ and the Spirit, and we continue to call it a mystery to mark that salvation historical structure of um, long hiddenness and preparation and final revelation and making known. So I could say more about what's made known. Um, basically what's made known is the, the presence of the Messiah and the eschatological spirit, that in fulfillment of the promises, um, in the fullness of times, God sent forth his Son. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, you get multiple statements like that in the New Testament, uh, just kind of rejoicing in and, and stating bluntly the fact that it finally happened. Uh, you know, And you know what you lack, really, in the New Testament is sort of background information that says, okay, step one, you need to know that God has a Son. Now, step two, he sent his Son. Um, they kind of skip step one, and the New Testament's very excited, multiple authors, to affirm God sent his son. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the Old Testament doesn't quite set you up with a biblical understanding of what sonship entails um, in a New Testament sense. I mean, the lines of connection are all there, but if you just did an Old Testament study of Son of God, you get lots of things, you know, angels, 
um, the, the son of David, things like that. The New Testament jumps into the story in the midst of the fulfillment and uh, says that in the fullness of time God sent his son, therefore he must have had a son, and, uh, and of course he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So that this revealing is something that happened after the Old Testament stopped being writing, but before the New Testament started being <laughs> written. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's a that's a, a trick I take from B.B. Warfield, who was commissioned to write the Trinity article for the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. And I'm sure his editors must have panicked when he turned in the draft <laughs> that said, it's a biblical doctrine, it's just not yet revealed in the Old Testament, and it's too late for it to be revealed in the New Testament. It happened in between. <laughs> you know, of course, it's B.B. Warfield. He's got a, a solid and robust doctrine of Scripture. By between the Testaments, he doesn't mean the Apocrypha. By between the Testaments, he doesn't mean that white page that separates Malachi from Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> By between the Testaments, he means in the actual historical event of the personal arrival of the Son and the Spirit, which the New Testament um, in an inspired way, documents and teaches about. Hmm. So if when, if when you say that the Trinity is a revealed mystery or a revealed doctrine, if I hear you say, when you say revealed, if I hear in my head, in the Bible, um, I've actually missed an important distinction. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, and something I've had to try to police my own language about is the question of whether I'm talking about how the Trinity was revealed or how the Trinity is revealed. Hmm. And, you know, English usage is, is uh, loose enough that I could say either one and mean various things. But if I'm sticking to uh, the historical unfolding of our knowledge of God, um, I think I should say that the Trinity was revealed in the Incarnation and Pentecost. Mm -hmm. And I might be able to say the Trinity is revealed in Scripture, because... Um, you know, here I would, <laughs> I would shelter under my invocation of Warfield a few minutes ago to say, well, I don't think the writings of the New Testament are merely documents. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the category of, they're not just documentation, they are themselves verbal plenary revelation um, of a dependent sort. Mm. Yeah. So, so in one sense, the Trinity is revealed in Scripture, but it was revealed in the Incarnation and Pentecost. Okay. And so this is this is often the point at which um, Rahner and his rule get uh, evoked, that we uh, we look to uh, the uh, that the 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 economic the imminent Trinity is the economic Trinity and vice versa. Right. Well, we should camp on that. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so here's the thing about Rahner's rule. Um, in the context of Revelation, it, it's interesting to, and I've worked on Rahner's rule, you know, uh, from various angles for, for some time. Mm -hmm. The thing that I, that I really kind of pick at in this book on Rahner's rule is that it's partly driven by his prior decisions about how God, how Revelation takes place. Mm. And, um, trying to leave out the, the sort of philosophical complexity of Rahner's position uh, that's kind of this post-Kantian transcendental Thomism. It's, you know, it's a thick, it's a thick German brew. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, but the, the short version is basically that Rahner 
uh, is really standoffish about the possibility of verbal propositional revelation mm-hmm. carrying to us um, informational knowledge about God. Well, you know, he's got his own reasons for that, and, and I would point out those are not Trinitarian reasons. You know, he's driven by other um, 20th century, 19th and 20th century uh, categories and decisions that he feels like he has to make. The payoff for the doctrine of the Trinity is, if I can't say I know about the triunity of God because of the verbal propositional uh, revelation contained in Scripture, then I pretty much have to say I'm learning it from the economic trinity. Hmm. That is to say, the actions and events witnessed to or testified to in Scripture are the actual historical events that I'm interacting with to get my knowledge, uh, which then, of course, becomes a kind of existential knowledge um, of the triunity of God. In other words, Runner's rule intentionally turns aside from verbal propositional revelation and instead tries to derive the whole doctrine of the Trinity from events in salvation history. So it's kind of Trinitarian theology with one hand tied behind your back, and it's remarkable how fruitful and even in some cases helpful um, a Rahner's rule kind of take on things was in the course of the 20th century. Hmm. Considering that it's kind of a stunt, like watch me do this without appealing to verbal propositional revelation. Right. Well, and... (laughs) Um, I may, maybe this is, uh, you know, maybe this is just a result of my own impressions, but it seems as if, um, Rahner's rule has, uh, and, and maybe not necessarily been your starting point or your home base, whatever you want to call it for your Trinity books, but there, there seems to be a real closeness of your project of wanting to, of wanting us to keep, to keep turning back to the economy, um, or uh, to talk about um, what God has done in salvation history as our prime reference for talking about God in himself. Um, Right. So, I mean, how is what you're doing not exactly what Ronner's doing, but still (laughs) Ronner-y, Ronner-ish? I mean, do you want to claim it? Well, you know, I, I probably wouldn't. I think you're right that I, I kind of can't leave Rahner's rule alone. I keep picking at it. It was, um, you know, my, my dissertation uh, way back in the day was kind of a journalistic project of reading everything downstream from Rahner and identifying who had said what about this little 10-word formula that he had put mm-hmm. out there. Um so, you know, that's, it's basically just going through lots of books and seeing who has said what and done what about Rahner's rule, how do you classify him, what can we learn from him, and then to attempt to put that in dialogue with the great tradition from, you know, before Rahner, and then to try to put that in conversation with the task of theological interpretation of Scripture. Mm. I, I feel like I keep trying to get to that. I barely, I barely got to anything approaching exegesis in the dissertation. In fact, there's no Scripture index because it would have been, you know, a couple of verses. Mm. <laughs> so even though the book features, even though the book version of it features the phrase theological interpretation of scripture in the subtitle, uh, I never quite got there. In, in this book, I make even more of a concerted effort to um, get all the way to some actual hermeneutics and exegesis. But yeah, if I, if I were to say something good about Runner's Rule um, in a kind of a modified or chastened form that the economic trinity truly reveals or is the image of the imminent trinity, um, and that we shouldn't look elsewhere for um, 
sort of analogical or speculative ways of constructing our doctrine of, of God and himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I would say that was a healthful uh, recentering of theology on the history of salvation that was really uh, one of the good things that happened in 20th century theology. Mm. Okay. So we can we can differ about his his notions of revelation while still uh, enjoying the meat. <laughs> so yeah, to speak. certainly, certainly. Insofar as uh, Ronard did give a, a helpful recentering of of the doctrine of God onto the history of salvation, that's that's valuable. Now you know, big picture, I'm sure someone like John Webster would say, you know, a recentering of God onto a historical matrix is hardly an achievement in 20th century theology. It's actually the problem. Of, <laughs> <laughs> it's the problem of historicism eating away ontology, even in the field of the doctrine of God. Mm. Um, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, but compared to a kind of approach to the Trinity that is uh, merely stacking up a set of timeless truth claims and not recognizing the way in which the Son and the Spirit constitute the economy by their presence in it, uh, then it's, it's an advantage. And of course, when I say a chase and former runner's rule, what I mean is no vice versa and um, some kind of built-in guarantee of the freedom of God in the way that you state it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, Ronner, of course, uh, said uh, on the speculative question, could any person of the Trinity have become incarnate? You simply must answer no. It had to be the Son necessarily. And um, that's attractive. It sounds very gospel-y. It sounds very Jesus-centered. sounds very non-speculative. Um, but in fact, it's, it's enormously difficult, and it's kind of a minority position in the history of Christian theology. And uh, Bart and Luther, and maybe most helpfully Aquinas, beg to differ, mm-hmm. because they think that uh, the divine freedom... Um, the divine freedom dictates that the economy of salvation is contingent and freely chosen in some mm-hmm. specifiable ways. Yeah. Hmm. W- it, m- might this be one of those conditions where we bring out words like fitting instead of necessary? Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. That's, um, that's Aquinas' move, is to say, he says what, what does truly sound like a fairly horrible sentence, that uh, any person of the Trinity could have become incarnate and could now. <laughs> you read that and think, oh, no, this is the scholastic death that they warned me about. Um, But what he goes on to do for the rest of the page is say, uh, but look how fitting it is, how super fitting it is that it's the Son who becomes incarnate. And then he rehearses all the ways in which it makes such sense for the Son to be the one uh, uh, through whom the redemption of the world happens. Mm. Um, And yeah, he uses that word fitting, um, uh, convenience. In fact, he he, uh, makes a perfection of it, convenientissimum. Right, hmm. very very fitting, <laughs> but non non not necessary non necessarium. Hmm. Well, you also take a strong exception to the really common distinction that we've already kind of been um, tossing around between the imminent Trinity and the economic Trinity, and uh, say that I think we're better served sticking to the terms processions and missions. Well, I always thought that those were more or less interchangeable. So, yeah, yeah. what do we gain or lose?
choose when we choose one category or the other? Yeah, good, good question. Um, and it'll, it'll, be a, it'll be a tidy question to see if I or we can avoid using economic and eminent language um, <laughs> in, in the near future, because um, it's so built into the modern discussion. Mm-hmm. Though classroom teachers in, in seminary settings are pretty, pretty commonly complaining about the, the trouble of having to teach this set of technical terms. Uh, you know, it just adds more lumber to the to the task of teaching theology. Um, so here's, and I think it's great to say that just kind of sounds like missions and processions. I I think I've taken that approach in the past, so I think you can do that. Um, Gilles Emery also takes that relatively friendly approach of saying, you know, economic and eminent. That's a that's a bit of a kludgy modern way of saying what the classic tradition has said with the eternal processions in the being of God and the temporal missions into salvation history. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in, in uh, peacemaking mode, you, you, could, uh, you could put those two together. W- what I did here is try to dig back a little deeper into the, the uh, genealogy of Rahner's rule and figure out where these terms came from that he could put together in a sentence like, the economic is the eminent and vice versa. Um, they, they're a, kind of an 18th century way of talking, which when you get out into the twigs and branches of why those phrases were formulated, it was actually to block the inference that temporal missions reveal eternal processions. Hmm. Uh, it was some early modern thinkers who wanted to say, there are three in salvation history, and there are three in the eternity of the divine being, but... It seems kind of uh, uh, tacky to say that the Son is sent by the Father here in the economy of salvation because there is a, a coming forth from in the actual being of God. There must be some way, surely the way the Son comes forth from the Father above the economy of salvation, surely that's just kind of a buffer zone or a, a gasket or a, um, a pre-temporal dispositional preparation for the missions that are going to happen. Because surely when you get all the way up into the actual Trinity itself, um, there's just perfect equality, uncomplicated by something as weird as a relation of origin. Hmm. Well, so that's, that's what was put out there. And it was a strange little obscure book, and I do the footnotes um, in, in the text of, of this book, The Triune God. Um, but if, if you notice that the categories economic trinity and eminent trinity, with their kind of grammatical weirdness of doubling the trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no one believes there are two trinities. Almost nobody has ever been fooled by Rahner's rule into affirming two trinities. That's that's not what's going on. But grammatically, they're they're two trinities. You have to put them. You have to put two trinities into every sentence you make using this set of conceptions. Um, and then that has a that has a distorting effect on the on the downside. It's very abstract and complex, and when things get abstract and complex, you find that you can make mistakes and not catch yourself making those mistakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on the upside, uh, it's, it's sort of like taking a very distant view of all the evidence at once. So I'll, I'll still use that economic eminent language if what I want is a very abstract, far away, distant perspective on every bit of evidence having to do with the history of salvation and the being of God all at one time. And occasionally you want that when you're talking about Trinitarian theology. Hmm. Yeah. 
So anyway, the fact that these, these categories were generated in order to block the inference that missions reveal processions, um, that explains why Rahner didn't fix as much as he thought he did by just putting them back together. Hmm. Right? It's not just that you had something that was nicely unified, someone broke it, and Rahner fixed it by asserting the identity of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a distinction that was made for a particular end, and we're kind of going against the grain when, you know, when in Deep Things of God, I sort of conflate the two. Economic Trinity just means the missions. Uh, or Hills Emery does the same thing in his book, The Trinity, and Introduction to Catholic Doctrine. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you say the two, if you, if you utter, um, if you, if you state Ronner's rule, you know, they are the, this is that and vice versa. Um, I mean, I, I guess you also have the, the, the danger of, uh, illegitimately folding one into the other in a way that loses the clarity of precisions and missions. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, there, there was a greater clarity to saying that uh, economic missions reveal eternal processions, and it's it's the distinction between God's being and act, mm-hmm. uh, which is obscured um, generally by the use of those categories, as in Runner's rule. Hmm. In uh, one of the earlier chapters, I think it's maybe three. You 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 talk about. Uh, that the the order in which we talk about the Trinity, whether we first talk about um, Trinity and being, and then Trinity revealed in salvation history, or or work the other way around, and you use the the language of the ordo cognoscendi, the order in which we know things, and the order ascendi, order ascendi, the order in which things are. Um, I kept thinking about that in this in this section where you were saying processions, processions, missions, not imminent trinity and economic trinity, because it seemed as if, um, in, in a certain kind of way, the imminent trinity, economic trinity language seemed to either block the flow, um, mm-hmm. you know, as we're attempting to ascend from what's revealed to um, to the higher mysteries, or either um, descend from um, these uh, these these higher mysteries into their um, historic into this historical um, action uh, mm-hmm. that the breaks seem to yeah it, it, it seemed to break the flow break the logic make make the one have less to do with the other as you've said yeah yeah I think that's right and so um, I I think uh, I'm not trying to be a language cop here or you know do yeah. some kind of Maoist rectification of the names or something like that. Um, I will still probably continue to use some of that language. I expect even people who read my book and are persuaded by that argument will continue to use some of the language anyway. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's built into so much of the secondary literature. Um, but I hope we can use it without being used by it. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope we can go and get that tool at times when um, we've already established that flow that you just described, um, you know, and the long lines of doctrine connecting the economy to the being of God. Uh, through the divine freedom uh, are, are are in place, and then we want to kind of get a more uh, rigid conceptual, conceptual schema mm-hmm. that we might uh, avail ourselves of this economic eminent language. Hmm. Well, I'd like to round out our conversation by camping for a while on how this plays out in the way that we read the Bible. Uh, your introduction says that you hope to, quote, 
offer systematic help for reconstructing the plausibility structures for biblical Trinitarianism, and we should probably unpack that. But how does this dogmatic reorientation um, steer us to a good, well-founded Bible doctrine of the Trinity and maybe Mm -hmm. steer us away from some unreliable, even if they are venerable, um, Trinitarian readings? Yeah. Yeah, so a a major decision I made early on in the book um, was that the fact that traditional proofs of the doctrine of the Trinity have progressively become uh, more and more implausible to us. Um, The fact that I couldn't treat that in a minor way, that that actually had to... that's a big thing happening in the doctrine of the Trinity in the last couple centuries, and it needed to be dealt with head-on and um, as a a central part of the actual dogmatic enterprise. Um, And then once you make that decision that we kind of have a crisis of the the way of appealing to Scripture for the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, um, then you can start. There's some sorting business to do. So, for instance, some of the assured results of uh, modern critical uh, reconstructions of Scripture, some of those assured results um, need to quit being assured results. You know, those (laughs) those should be debunked and exploded. (laughs) So there are places like that that you would write down on a list of things to have a fight about or find reliable biblical studies scholars who are helping to turn the tide here. Because, you know, there are some specifiable planks of the old historical critical synthesis that are just uh, ripe for right for demythologizing. Hmm. Um, but then, then there's a, another whole category where you think, well, these are actually really solid, sober, modern, grammatical, historical arguments that I, I think are telling. Um, uh, so, so one of the really easy examples is I have a lot of old books on the Trinity that make much of First John 5. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Spirit. Well, I think that as a proof text of Trinitarian doctrine in Scripture, that's just gone. I mean, unless you're going to be a King James-only kind of a person or have some other... I mean, there are some Catholics who are not King James-only, obviously, but who have complex arguments for why that uh, interpolated phrase in 1 John 5, the Johannine comma, has dogmatic authority. But unless you want to go that route, um, I think it's best to admit, yeah, that proof went away. Hmm. Um, And so you can make a list of, of... um, biblical demonstrations of the doctrine of the Trinity that are no longer valid in our contemporary intellectual culture, and for good reason. Hmm. Um, now, ideally, what would happen is, as you clean those things up, you could sort of structurally retrofit the building uh, for any coming earthquakes, you know, by <laughs> not removing the bad walls until you've put in reinforcements of various kinds. I don't consider that ideologically suspect. That's not just me having already decided what doctrine I want to believe and shopping around to find any justification I can for the doctrine I'm going to keep believing no matter what. That's a matter of us actually doing publicly responsible um, intellectual work uh, and, and showing our work. Hmm. And then, of course, the Church Fathers. Um, I have this, you know, I think moderns have to have a complex relationship to the the blessings of, of patristic insights into Scripture. Um, they are Let's see. Let, let me say this interculturally and, and talk about dealing with a different culture. Um, the culture that the Church Fathers write out of 
is a culture that's especially good at holistic argument and from our perspective rather weak at specific exegetical warrant hmm. um, and then of course you know to judge our culture from the outside we could say man we are great at breaking things down into atomistic bits and explaining how they function we are losing our grip on holism <laughs> you know? hmm. and so um, so what are we doing when we avail ourselves of patristic exegesis we should benefit from what their culture brings that ours doesn't have um, but that doesn't that doesn't mean we should pretend that we're somehow naturalized into the fourth century in a way that's just not valid for a 21st century thinker. Um, so th- that's the general rule um, of how to use the long tradition of Trinitarian interpretation in a way that really stands up to modern scrutiny. Mm-hmm. So what is that going to look like in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, especially? Yeah. Yeah, so um, there are some structural decisions for the book. I have um, I have a big shelf of Trinity books, and even the good ones make what I think is kind of a structural misstep where they want to present the biblical material first, and then within the biblical material, they want to present the Old Testament material first. And there are good reasons for that. You know, you can't, if you just start with the New Testament, you've got a million presuppositions that you would have to go get you know, filled in from somewhere, and of course, we would fill them in from the large body of literature immediately to the left of the New Testament, you know, the, <laughs> the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Or, as, as my uh, Old Testament scholar friends call it, most of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, nevertheless, if you start your book with the Old Testament in chapter one, you, you're putting yourself in the rhetorical position of trying to build a case from divine plurals and you know, the angel of the Lord, and just really obscure, shadowy um, arguments that do not stand on their own until the rest of the case has been built later on. Mm -hmm. So I decided I was going to start with the New Testament, uh, and of course, for reasons that I've already described earlier in the interview, I thought, oh, but you can't just start with page one of the New Testament. You You have to first establish the fact that the Son and the Spirit were here, and in both cases, though in different modes, are are here, um, that the incarnate Son and the outpoured Pentecostal Spirit uh, uh, came to live among us at that time. Um, so, so what I do, the order of operations is, first, dogmatic description of the revelation of the triune God at Incarnation and Pentecost, then the New Testament witness to that, then, or attestation, I think is the word uh, that I use, and then the Old Testament um, adumbrations of hmm. uh, that coming revelation. So, if you know, if I were to break it down into three words, it would be revelation, attestation, adumbration. Hmm. What's an adumbration? Yeah, isn't that a great word? It's, uh, <laughs> I think Kevin Van Hooser recently remarked that he only ever hears the word fissiparous when people are talking about Protestant churches. Huh. <laughs> it's this fine word. It's a real English word. You just only hear it in one context. I only ever run into the word adumbration in the context of how the Trinity is in the Old Testament. Mm, Okay. Uh, Yeah, adumbration. So from the Latin ad umbra, it's a shadowing forth. Ah, okay. Um, So an adumbration is a shadowy, uh, a shadowy presence, a shadowing forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my decision was to say, yeah, there is clearly Trinity stuff happening in the Old Testament. Lots of fascinating, complex, interesting Trinity stuff. But I think I want to stay committed to the proposition that adumbration is not revelation. Hmm. 
um, that if, if God makes something known, he, he makes it known, known. You know, it, he, he's a successful revealer. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I just have the Old Testament without the retrospective arguments provided by the New Testament on the basis of the coming of the Son and the Spirit, um, I, I don't think I could hold the Old Testament and say the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed here. Mm-hmm. Again, to invoke B.B. Warfield, he, he described the Old Testament in a Trinitarian context, he described the Old Testament as a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. Hmm. Um, and so I reserve, so I jealously reserve the word revelation for the coming of the Son and the Spirit, attestation for the inspired New Testament teaching about it, mm-hmm. and adumbration for the way in which the Trinity is present but with the lights off in the Old Testament. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, I, and, and you know, I've, I've I've poked around in some church fathers and uh, in some of the their Trinity writings, and um, when they get into the Old Testament, sometimes it, um, I I feel a bit as I'm reading, uh, like someone who's who's sort of looking at the clouds and saying that looks a lot like Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and that, and 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 frankly, if that's the uh, if that's the way that you lead off your argument, I guess uh, simply from a tactical perspective, that's you know kind of like leading with your chin. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me begin to prove the doctrine of the Trinity, which is a crucial, central doctrine uh, that gives Christian theology its identity. And let's start with um, divine plurals in Hebrew text. <laughs> <laughs> it just it, it doesn't connote the kind of seriousness. You know, you have to bring with you to that task mm-hmm. a kind of seriousness that you got from the stakes of Revelation elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would just say um, um, with the Church Fathers, it is so typical of patristic biblical argument that they get the right answer, but when they show their work, they show work that's not acceptable um, to our standards, or they'll they'll point out a truth, but they'll point to it uh, in a place different from where that truth is established. Hmm. Um, I think I think that's coming from their holism, and you know, I I came to respect that. I, I respect it on a scholarly level. I came to respect it a lot more pastorally when I preached a little bit, and um, uh, I, I'm in a church that preaches through a book of the Bible, and you know, there there just comes a time when you are assigned the part of the book of Acts where nothing happens but a shipwreck. <laughs> And it's, it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward narrative without much theological help from Dr. Luke. And you think, all right, I'm going to put my nose down in this book and preach what I see in front of me. Uh, Historically, grammatically, I'm going to say what's here and not bring in a lot of stuff from elsewhere. But also the whole reason I'm doing this is I'm bringing the Word of God to the people of God, you know, to equip them for, for their Christian lives. I think I'm going to have to go look around the entire rest of the Bible to see why I should care about this story of a shipwreck. Hmm. And so that's that's when you have to kick in those holistic modes of thinking, which the Church Fathers are fantastic training for how to do that. Hmm. But I would say also good good uh, low-church evangelical preaching is the same thing. You know, an evangelical pastor knows your job is to preach the whole counsel of Scripture, sometimes from one particular passage in front of you, and so you will bring in information from elsewhere. It's just a matter of being methodologically transparent in our current situation when mm-hmm. you're bringing information in from elsewhere instead of pretending you're finding it there in Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder sometimes whether they might maybe have been more attuned to the, uh, I don't know, the style of the Trinity, so to speak, mm. mm-hmm. so that um, so that they look at uh, they look at, at narrative material and 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 they see they see the Trinity's peculiar use of color, <laughs> 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 and maybe it's not a signed picture, but you know they see they see the marks everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I think there's probably something to that. I know um, Malcolm Yarnell has a recent book out uh, uh, where he uses the phrase the uh, the Trinitarian idiom as mm-hmm. as a factor in Trinitarian revelation, and he does a, seri- a series of case studies or close readings in Scripture to kind of pull out that Trinitarian idiom. Hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I think that's about all we've got time for. Um, we like to end on the Christian Humanist Profiles by letting our guests have the last word. So uh, have you got anything that you'd like our listeners to consider as we finish our conversation today? Um, topics to yeah. keep in mind or books to read or anything like that? Yeah, I, I think, um, so I, I started out by saying, kind of excusing myself for this being an exercise in slow thinking, which is not exactly mm. a hot recommendation for how, you know, to get people <laughs> to rush out and buy the book. Um, but but I, I've tried really hard to kind of draw as far back as possible and be uh, um, uh, take a large perspective to laying out why God made himself known to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Um you know, and those are salvation reasons that he's he's being for us who he is in himself, and, and things that I've said earlier in books. Um, but I also think knowing what the doctrine of the Trinity is doing in Christian theology and the Christian life preserves you in advance from shopping for the other ones. And I could just name a couple of the obvious ones. Um, uh, people are always discovering. Clever people are always discovering in the Trinity. Uh, really cool stuff that I just have to shake my head and say, that's that's not what that's for. So <laughs> anyone who finds in the doctrine of the Trinity a blueprint for a perfect society of, of humans interacting with each other, I think, no, I, you know, I, I mean, I'll need to read your book to see if you see what you found there, but I can tell you in advance that that's not what the doctrine of the Trinity is for. Um, it, you know, God didn't make this known so that it could be a model for our imitation in human interaction. Um, I, uh, I think currently the best-selling new release in theology is a Trinity book by Richard Rohr, um, which is about some kind of divine cosmic flow and circulation of something or another, kind of New Agey sounding. Um, <laughs> again, you'd have to look at it and see, well, tell me about this flow, and I want to know what your arguments are and what you're saying about it. But I can say in advance... That is just not what the doctrine of the Trinity is for. The doctrine of the Trinity is not about teaching us some kind of dancing flow between God and the cosmos. That's, that's not what's going on there. Hmm. So um, I hope that the exercise in, in slow thinking and kind of careful tying things down to the scriptural plausibility of this uh, and showing the evidence uh, will help people avoid, even in advance, those kinds of misunderstandings. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on to Christian Humanist Profile, sir. All right. Good to talk to you again, David. Well, that is all, dear listeners. Uh, If you have any feedback on this episode or uh, questions, you can 
post those on the show notes uh, in the comments section on our blog, uh, christianhumanist.org, when those show notes post. You can send them to our email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or you can post them on our Facebook page. You can like us on Facebook, and also if you get us through iTunes, we always appreciate it when we get good ratings. It helps people find us. Well, today we've been having a conversation with Dr. Fred Sanders about his book, The Triune God, uh, the second in the New Studies and Dogmatic series uh, out by Zondervan. There will be a link to that book in the show notes on the blog. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.